the world's changing. I mean, we're, we're going to have, you know, carbon taxes and credits and uh, there's a lot of stuff coming. Welcome to Fast Forward, presented by Commotion, your weekly glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for Commotion. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Thane de Mordaunt, uh, urban principal for the Rocky Mountain Institute. I would start with a bit of news this week, Julia, but the news is, is that commotion happened. We were together. You and I hung out. This is the most exciting Yay! news I could possibly lead with. This, yes, l- listeners, as you're no doubt aware, uh, we're recording this immediately after an incredibly successful commotion LA held at the Japanese American National Museum in Little Tokyo of Los Angeles. I don't know what the final tally was, but having hundreds of people together in physical space, uh, as I mentioned in my welcoming remarks, uh, you know, someday that's going to feel banal and basic again, but until that day, it's just going to be absolutely thrilling. So, so thank you for joining us in person as well, Julia. It was great to see you after all this time. Absolutely. It was wonderful to see you too, Greg. And I think one of the comments that struck me from Lily Schaub, who's the managing director from Rebel, about the conference was, this conference has all of the people I want to talk to. I can't imagine a better compliment for a conference than, than that phrase. And I would echo it. I mean, it was just wonderful to see so many familiar faces, to meet new people, and to have these uh, amazing panels, but also discussions outside of the panels with folks who are really putting um, and pushing transportation technology worldwide. No, it was amazing. I mean, yes, after all this time video, we can share content, we can do our best, but like it was seeing seeing those connections. It was a great one where we saw at one point, we flagged it internally commotion of seeing Stephanie Wiggins, CEO of LA Metro, uh, meeting with uh, the Undersecretary of Policy for you know US DOT. So knowing those kinds of conversations are happening at commotion just like warms our hearts that we're able to bring that whole community together. So that's amazing. I also learned this year, by the way, that it's Lily Schaup, not Shoop. And, and when I asked if I got it wrong for literally years, Lily's like, yes, Greg, I'm sorry to tell you that. Because as she knows, Donald Shoup's ghost, well, he's alive and well, but Donald, Donald Shoup's influence hangs over us all. So not an easy, not an easy name to bear there. Um, but we've got a couple of guests. We're going we're to talk a bit about highlights, I think, for, for, um, from this year's commotion. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Julia, and what sort of themes stood out from you. We're going to have three guests that we're going to weave in. I, I took the opportunity this past week to do some field recordings, uh, pulling aside a handful of people that uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted them to elaborate on some of the lines in their talks. And I could have had, we could have had dozens of people on here. We could have you know, redone this entire conference, um, but we'll have three, and I'll, I'll bring them up as we go. Um, but first, the first question is, Julia, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on the, on the tenor and the conversation this year, because the one thing that really stood out for me, given that, you know, the infrastructure bill has passed and given that as we tape this, uh, Build Back Better has cleared the U.S. House of Representatives to go to the Senate, is that all the things that we've been talking about for five years, it, what, conversations that started in the Trump presidency when there was not a lot being passed through Congress, um, is now on the verge of fruition. We have the funds. We have the will. These things are going to happen. So I don't know. That, that was the, the biggest one that jumped out at me that, like, you know, this is moving. We've been seeding the ground with ideas, and now they're actually going to be put into practice. Right. And that's a little bit intimidating as well. <laughs> you know, uh, I would say, Greg, there were two main themes that jumped out to me uh, during the conference. And that is, one, we need to spend the money we have, and especially mm-hmm. with the infrastructure bill. And two, we need to get more money. <laughs> so it's not only about spending the money we have, it's about getting some more money. The two areas that I really saw that um, coming out in terms of conference themes was the First opening panel with um, just the amazing representatives representatives from LADOT, from LA Metro, from Vancouver, and Miami-Dade. 
I mean, Jerry from Canada, um, who is the COO, I believe, of, of Vancouver's transit agency, really shamed us. And by us, I mean uh, us Americans in the audience about the infrastructure bill and the embarrassment of riches that it presents um, for us to be able to uh, really re-envision our infrastructure in the 21st century. And then Salida's anecdote about um, how LADOT has received, uh, I think it was a $6 million grant from the California Energy Commission to put microgrids and solar storage uh, at a, a bus depot in order to electrify the buses, um, and how that was actually the largest grant that was given for that type of project in the U.S., and it was $6 million. So the wow. point there being, you know, that we really need to move away from uh, uh, just talking about the money to spending the money, um, and also um, really reframe what we're doing, uh, especially now that there's infrastructure bill money coming, uh, from shovel-ready to shovel-worthy. Um, folks like Brookings and others have started to put out research that you know demonstrates how we need to to move away from what's in our ten year pipeline of projects to mm -hmm. projects that really move the needle and really move the dial um, in terms of decarbonizing transportation and providing better equity and access. Yes, and avoiding the mistakes of the Obama stimulus, where you know just simply throwing money at the first available shovel ready projects, uh, which did not really sort of further that strategy. Well, it's, it'll be interesting to see if that more money comes, particularly with Build Back Better. Uh, the Georgia-based transportation analyst Nathaniel Hordam was reading through, I think, the provisions, and if I understand what he said correctly, it, one of the lines there would allow transit agencies to buy electric buses at the same rates as diesel ones, and then of course that unlocks the potential for you know dirt cheap uh, you know charging equipment and elsewhere. So you know perhaps there's a tidal wave of more funding and possibility coming. Um, but this is a good opportunity, since you mentioned that first panel, to bring out a wheel out our first guest who I corralled. And we apologies in advance if, uh, for the audio issues, you know, Gabe and I uh, talking through masks. Um, but it was Gabe Klein, the partner at CityFi, who was the moderator of that first session. Of course, Gabe, you know, ran uh, DOTs in Washington, D.C. and Chicago himself. Um, but one of the things he said is that, you know, that, that, you know, he's been engaging with a number of, of progressive urbanists who are, of course, angry about some of the provisions in the infrastructure bill that will continue to widen highways. I know a pet... Uh, Pet, pet project of Boulevard <laughs> to stop that. Um, and so let's wheel out Gabe here. We'll, we'll bring up his audio here to hear what Gabe had to say, uh, defending both, you know, what the Biden plan is doing there and also hint at the metaverse, which he invoked in his opening remarks as well. So here's Gabe. Gabe, you mentioned this morning that like progressive urbanists like Jeff Speck, who is not one to not make his opinions known, yes. pushed back heavily on the Biden bill, basically arguing that it's going to build more highways, it's going to lead to all the negative externalities. And you took a more sort of like, you know... Um, Nuanced approach, maybe. That's a very good way well, of look, phrasing look, it. I, I love Jeff. Jeff's a good friend of mine. You know, he lives down the hill from me, or he used to. But um, what I was saying was that progressives, including myself, might be disappointed in where the bill ended up on some of the issues, right? And a lot of the money going to roads. However, um, it's not like that's necessarily um, Secretary Buttigieg's or Biden's uh, uh, wish. I mean, the way our democracy works is you you ask for the, for the world for what you really want, and then you negotiate with people that don't agree with you, and you get to something that everybody maybe can live with. And, you know, it's, it's disappointing, but it's more of a product of the political system that we have. And, I, and my view is like, look, um, let's say you view it as lemons. Well, let's figure out how to make lemonade. And a lot of local people are going to decide how that money is spent. Um, so let's make sure that they have as many opportunities to spend it on people-centered projects, right? And then the other thing is that um, um, over 10% of the bill, over $100 billion, in fact, I believe $114 billion is discretionary. And, you know, working on the transition, I mean, it's definitely a focus 
Like, how do you get more money directly to cities? I've always been passionate about that. I, Secretary LaHood was, was down to do it, uh, but you had to get the governor to buy off on it, and that's very hard to do. However, uh, this discretionary money, the secretary can direct as he wishes. And I think it's logical um, that a lot of that money will flow. I mean, some of it will flow to states, but it'll flow to regions, counties, cities. And uh, ultimately, more local control of money is a good thing. And I would think that conservatives like that as well. They should like local control. They like earmarks. And so at this point, you know, I think that we have a bill that, uh, sure, it's highly imperfect, um, but it's certainly not Buttigieg and Biden's fault. Right. And so let's take what we got and let's make the most of it. And by the way, we're not done yet. We've got um, reconciliation, you know, build back better. Uh, We've got art money that hasn't been spent that we may be able to flex for other uses. Um, We've got an innovation bill with $50 billion that's already passed the Senate, needs to pass the House, which will create like $10 billion innovation districts basically across the country. So, you know, I think also that our biggest problem is not money. And I'm going to give Jeff a little credit here because um, I love Jeff. No, but he, he's right. Like, I mean, the, the, the problem in this country is not money. It's the policy. It's the bad habits, right? It's the bad design habits. It's thinking that this is the way to do things. And so Jeff's right about that. Uh, yeah, because I want to ask about, like, I mean, this, you know, the message that the federal infrastructure bill sends to, like, the state DOTs, which are still widening highways everywhere. I mean, you know, Julia and Rocky Mountain have their entire calculator of, like, how basically yeah. wide highway widening, is, which is still going on, is making things worse. How do you rein in the state DOTs and these other bad habits, as you put it? Well, look, with formula funds, it, it's hard. I mean, I do think that um, voluntarily a lot of them are going to take a fix-it-first approach because they realize that for every bit of infrastructure that they expand, they have to maintain it. And many of them don't have the funding to maintain what they have now. Now, I will say the road builders are, you know, a lobby to be reckoned with. Um, You know, I think the tact with the road builders is to get them to understand that they can make as much or more money building transit, building light-speed rail, building high-speed rail, um, and then maybe they should stop fighting it and get on board, right? And the world's changing. I mean, we're, we're going to have, you know, carbon taxes and credits. And uh, there's a lot of stuff coming <clears throat> that I think is going to dictate that we have less fossil fuel powered travel. Um, but fundamentally, America is, is a country with um, a history of pretty flawed land use decisions. And I think you sort of heard some of that today where it's like, okay, uh, on, on our panel, um, you know, Vancouver, they really think about land use in the same way they think about transportation. You got to merge the two. You keep making the same bad decisions on land use. And this is, you know, Jeff would, would, would agree with this too. Um, then you're going to make bad decisions on transportation, right? And so we got to fix that. And we got to stop throwing money at things that don't work. Um, I hope that the state DOTs, you know, have some sort of evolution. And I think they are in some of the more progressive states. I don't know if they're going to get there in Texas. Just don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, one other thing you mentioned at the end of your session, you invoked, you were one of the first to invoke the metaverse, which, of course, you know, the giant Facebook project. Well, John Ellis, you know, worked it into his yeah. keynote as well. Oh, did he? And, um, and I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Obviously, you know, Cityfy working with Ellison Associates and LADOT to implement the MDS, controversial in every yeah. way. 
But, but it raises questions. I'm, I'm curious if you've put much thought into it about what happens when technology companies start dropping digital worlds on top of the public realm. I mean, we think it's bad right now with the ride-hailing companies and what they did in terms of seeing the public realm as an externality which they could monetize. This is what Microsoft and Facebook first out of the gate in doing. So I don't know, any particular thoughts on that sort of next wave of it? You know, it's one thing to, to try to push back against Uber when it comes in with billions, but, you know, $2 trillion companies is even yeah. harder. It's true. I mean, look, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I'd like to see, you know, how some of this metaverse stuff plays out. I mean, I think often we have the, these, these conversations about these overhyped ideas and then they end up sort of being like, wah, wah, wah. Like, like there really isn't that much there. You know, my joke today was like, you know, I mean, goddamn, we can't paint uh, crosswalks. How are we going to create metaverse? But having said that, in my book, you know, six years ago, I wrote about the fact that I thought that augmented reality and other things would impact the way we move and that it could be a real positive. But when you take it to the point where you're talking about people not really living in this life, but just on a headset and living their best life in second life or whatever, I think that's sad. Just to be honest with you, I think it's sad because I think that you're talking about moving to a society where we don't value anything real anymore. And it's all about perception and social media and what's fake. And that's just sad. Now, in terms of Uber and all of that, I think what we learned is that the virtual world or the, let's say the digital world can have serious impacts on our physical world. And that government needs to take extremely seriously and things need to be regulated. You know, and, and I do think, and, and I'm maybe not equipped to speak on this topic, but some of these companies that are talking about metaverse are very close to being broken up. So I think they should probably be a little careful, you know, uh, you know, in, in, in without really thinking through the impacts on society of just, you know, creating alternate universes. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Gabe. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. All right, Julia. So I'll take credit for the metaverse remarks there. I spent a good chunk of promotion <laughs> in stepping that idea. It's one of my pet projects. And for listeners, anyone who's listening who's interested in this, it's, you know, not the Zuckerbergian, we all float around, no, no one has legs, but more the notion of like Pokemon Go writ large of people running around in the urban fabric. How are we going to, you know, control that or even think about it? So so we'll, we'll come back to that in future episodes. But but yeah, but that was a really powerful one. I, I, one of the ones that jumped out for me, I think, in, in the overall, uh, in the scheme of things as well, was um, some of the partnerships that were forged there. We had, you know, ministerial presence from the UK. I believe there was an MOU sign between the city of Los Angeles and the UK on climate objectives. I was asked to moderate a hybrid panel uh, with folks, uh, the deputy mayor of London and a top-level official of Milan and the chief sustainability officer, Alyssa Mudo of uh, San Diego, where their newish mayor, Todd Gloria, uh, has really put together an ambitious climate plan. So it's great seeing, you know, not just C40 out there, but like, you know, commotion being a convener for different levels of government coming together to advance these plans because obviously we have to accelerate the pace of all of this and, uh, you know, given, given COP26 and its successes and failures. So... That, that also jumped out for me. But I don't know, any other no, favorite no, sessions? Or go, I'm sorry, go ahead then. Yeah, no, no, I was going to actually agree with that, Greg. I mean, the one word that I almost never wanted to hear again after the conference was partnerships. It seems to be along with the theme of almost every panel. What was nice about it is that people agreed that partnerships were essential to moving things forward. And they meant that in a wide variety of ways. It was across different levels of government. It was between public and private. It was community-first mobility projects as opposed to you know, defining what the solution is rather than knowing what the challenge is and for that matter, developing the solution without really having community buy-in from the beginning and community input from the beginning. 
Um, so I, you know, I, I kind of jest that partnership is a word that I never want to hear again. It's uh, obviously something I do a lot in my own work and with the work that we do at Urban Movement Labs. Um, but what I thought was interesting is there were a few different framings around partnership. Uh, I uh, really appreciated the panel that was about pricing um, mm -hmm. that brought together Marla Westervelt and Sam Jackson and um, uh, a woman, I'm forgetting her name, her last name, but Alex, who heads up the uh, Miami Parking Authority and then was moderated by um, Harry, the rideshare guy. And um, what one of the things that Marla said there was that, you know, partnership is really the allocation of risk to the right organization. Um, and I really think about partnership, not just about sharing of risk, but really more about sharing reward and about um, aligning incentives uh, across uh, different partners. So, um, you know, I, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, folks realize that uh, maybe, you know, mobility disruption 1.0 and 2.0 were all about antagonistic relationships and mobility 3.0, if we can call it that, or maybe it's 14.0, who knows what point oh we're at. Um, but it's really about uh, alignment um, and about um, um, creating those processes, not just those technologies, but those processes that allow for that greater alignment. No, absolutely. But I want to, I want to flag too a theme that came up. I know Stephanie Wiggins really sort of uh, nailed this in her opening keynote. And this came up with Trudy Harrison, the Undersecretary of State for the UK Ministry of Transport. Uh, one of the themes were all these public officials who marveled at the fact that during the pandemic, suddenly they could do whatever they wanted to do. Like they had actual agency. Uh, they like discovered their own powers and they could have, in fact, move swiftly and nimbly in a crisis. I mean, uh, I, think I, remember, I think I remember Trudy Harrison was saying that like, you know, they made decisions deep into the night, night after night after night during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, so that strikes me as really interesting because, you know, there's, of course, this like learned paralysis that I feel is true in, the United States, in, in all levels of U.S. government. Uh, and it's taught to them by a private sector that moves fast and breaks things kind of thing. So I, I really hope that in addition to everything you said, that there is a, you know, they retain that sense of agency and urgency and carry that forward. And that's why I was I was amused to see uh, Stephanie Wiggins, her opening keynote, quote Peter Drucker's, you know, culture eats strategy for, for, for breakfast. <laughs> and um, and right. yeah, and she's, and she's right. And of course, he, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, an old chestnut of management theory, but yeah, if she can change, you know, if they can change the culture of Metro to be aggressive, to move forward and have that funding, like that's what it's going to take. Not just be like, oh, well, you know, we built one thing. So, so that was interesting, but, but I'll, I'll on that point too, I was going to say on that point too, Greg, I mean, one of the things that came up um, uh, in our discussions outside of the panels was, and on the panels for that matter, and on my panel um, was about pilots. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies are trying to move away from pilots, moving towards scale, but are completely fine with product prototyping and understand the need to have an iterative approach when you're developing a technology solution. Pilots are politicians and policies way of doing that prototyping. And so it was, you know, interesting to hear people's diverging opinions around whether we need pilots or don't need pilots. Uh, but my own opinion is that, you know, really, again, if we're talking about uh, doing major procedural changes within government, it's helpful to have a pilot to show um, what you can do well and, and poorly, um, and also to uh, you know take some of those learnings forward into uh, broader legislation and policy shifts. Well, it was interesting. I mean, the thing about pilots that's always struck me is, is, is you know, they're they're a way to test the waters, and they can quickly be retracted. Right? It was always about uh, there was always a dimension of political cover to it. It's certainly that's how Jeanette City Khan would describe some of her you know early efforts and you know street closures and reclaiming lane space when she was the commissioner of DOT in New York. Um, and, you know, I, and I hope, you know, I, I hope that, um, you know, that's not just simply used to that end because the scale, because again, the scale and the speed of what's happening in the mobility space continues to stagger me every day. And this is, this will set up, you know, my favorite session overall when I helped curate, because I just 
am constantly amazed by what's happening at it, which was the Delivery 3.0 session that was moderated by Hungry's Matt Newberg. Um, Matt writes a whole newsletter. He's like one of those old school gumshoes who reads legal filings and is tracing all the ghost kitchens and dark stores. And he put together a panel of like basically three young dudes, uh, CEOs of these companies and Lily Schaup, who, of course, you know, riding herd on the policy and understanding the externalities for cities. And yeah, we're, we're, we'll queue up here in a second some, uh, an interview I did with David Lynn, who is a college undergraduate at UCLA who founded Duffel, which is basically doing dark stores for college students. Um, and so, yeah, you know, David revealed at one point that they are doing out of the tiny storefront, triple the sales per square foot of your average Trader Joe's, which is known for having pretty good efficiencies. And I've talked about the fact that like, you know, he's using electric scooters, uh, what he calls racers, his, his staff. And, you know, and instead of having anonymized labor, as you'll hear in a sec, um, the student's intricate knowledge of the, of the layout around UCLA is essential to his business. So, so let's bring out David here to talk a bit about like how quickly that's evolving. I guess it's the first question. Um, so Duffel's racers, you guys are using electric scooters. How did you settle on what form factor you chose for that? And how do you imagine that will evolve as, you know, Duffel scales up in size? If you looked at other vehicle types, like what do you think your mix will be for, for, for the different delivery devices? Yeah, no, good question. So it started with Bird, um, literally. So it inspired my entire entrepreneurship journey and, you know, Low-key, we were hacking bird scooters, and that's how I met my co-founder. And that's kind of why we chose scooters in the first place. And obviously, it's very easy to park. You can take it up an elevator. You can ride it in the hall. Um, and it, it really reduces the amount of space you need to allocate for the vehicles. Um, I think in the future, there will be a lot more bikes, for sure. We have been experimenting with kind of single-user cars, um, kind of those golf carts and those kind of vans that you use um, on campuses. So I think there'll be a huge mix depending on the geography and the weather of each location. Uh, I think bikes will be pretty dominant, bikes and scooters. So I'd estimate probably like 60, 40 bikes and scooters. Interesting. We, I mean, you've tracked so many metrics around your space utilization. I'm curious, like the, the racer you mentioned who did 81 deliveries in three hours. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, do you track those kind of metrics as well in terms of like what, I mean, they were using a scooter, I assume. Have yeah. you been able to see the efficiencies of different device types? And have you sort of quantified that out? And if so, like what are the, what are the results? Uh, we have not tracked the different vehicle types yet, but I think we've really thought about uh, weather as the biggest component when it comes to the form factor of delivery. Uh, bikes are better for traction um, than scooters because of the bigger wheels and the wider kind of access, but I think efficiency-wise, scooters are probably going to be dominant, um, just because you don't have to really park it at all, and it's light enough to carry upstairs. That's, that's a very key thing. And, you know, when it comes to robots, it's like my opinion is disposable thumbs are very important in the last yard, um, and that's really where delivery gets complicated. That's interesting. What, what stairwells are they going up to? Is this the student dormitories at UCLA, or is it like apartment buildings, or like how how are those how are the racers actually using that? Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's a it's a paradox of the best places to do last mile deliveries are in dense urban areas, but dense urban areas are notoriously difficult to navigate. Um, they're filled with alleyways, doors, and codes, and stairwells, and the. That's why we have such a heavy reliance on student labor is because they have institutional knowledge. 
they don't really need a map to tell them where to go. It's not like delivering to a house in the suburb. They know exactly where that is. They know how to get there, and they've delivered to the same door five times. You know, the same address, like six hundred Kelton, will have five houses inside, all at different levels. I've even seen like six, twelve and a half, or the third, and then unit A. The thing is, when they see it, they just know. And that mental map is very difficult to replicate with tech,、um, and you need a vehicle that can get there without, you know, wasting time. Well, one question I have is is about the effects on real estate. Obviously, you know, you started out of very small repurposed spaces. I'm curious your thoughts on what happens post pandemic, both in the sense of, you know, the retail apocalypse is already happening. There's more empty storefronts opening up all the time, and also, I mean, what does it do, or what do you think it will do, to The nature of streets and neighborhoods as dark stores start to proliferate. I mean, I've seen on Fourteenth Street, Manhattan, like you go on one block is Joker, and the next block is Beyond the Fridge, and the next block is Gorillas. And imagine that at scale, real scale, like you know, the street starts to disappear in a way. So, you know, is there a tipping point where like we start to harm cities if there's just too much of this, or what do you think will happen there? Yeah, there will definitely be some harm in this、uh, transis- transitionary period.、Um, With the cloud kitchens thing, we've seen like the double parking issue. With, I think dark stores specifically will be around safety and kind of having a thousand bikers zooming around where there are cars and stuff. People will get hurt.、Um, that's a huge priority for us. We're really,、um, we're really trying to invest in our people and their safety. And I think in the long term, there will be a lot of consolidation. So hopefully, there won't be too many players. And I do think the dark stores will get a little bit bigger. So, if they're going to be permanent marks and permanent assets of the landscape, you want it to be very vibrant and to have interactivity between customers and employees. So, in my vision, I think there is always going to be a pickup function of these dark stores, because nobody likes grocery shopping, but it doesn't mean they don't like taking a walk to get their food.、Um, But picking groceries is not something that everyone should have to do. <laughs> Great! Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. So afterward, afterward, Julia, he, by the way, he sent a very nice note to me and Holly at the commotion team, asking if we could send brochures and pictures of it for his green card application, which also shows to me that like this is exactly the kind of entrepreneurship、mm-hmm. that America should be striving to keep. So、That's、you got、good. it, David. We'll be sending that to you momentarily. <laughs> but 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 again, it's like it's like the the thing they talked about. Lily was so good at in capturing this about like you know already these evolving business models, and also struck me as a tension at the heart of this, which is we talk about decarbonization and we talk about you know how you know how do we How do we affect you know stop people from following the energy intensity of their personal desires to the point where it harms the world? Which is of course you know that's the original sin of cars. And at the same time, we're like seeing this incredible velocity of goods. There was a lot of discussion around freight, decarbonizing freight. I believe the the,、uh, the vice minister of, of the environment for the Netherlands brought that up a lot.、Uh, and it strikes me as like the next frontier of this. Like now that we're starting to get a handle on like how people should move around, there's been this huge growth in how we're moving stuff within cities. And it struck me that the only answer people seem to have is like, well, we'll electrify it, and then it will be fine. So I don't know. It strikes me there's some、uh, real policy making areas there. But I, you're you're the expert there, I would assume. I would say both policymaking and technology areas around that. I mean, beyond electrification, one of the other things that came up was automating freight.、Mm-hmm. Now that is the third rail in terms of、uh, political topics, especially with labor politics and the influence of labor groups、um, on U.S. politics.、Uh, 
but I think it's worth, you know, um, now that we're, you know, seeing this uh, congested supply chain, um, now that we're seeing uh, a lack of drivers be available to do uh, these sorts of deliveries, um, and, and I mean, you know, that long haul goods movement too, not just the uh, short haul of um, being uh, doing last mile delivery. Um, there is a uh, point to be made, and, and more companies that are popping up around the automation of freight. Um, but I would, you know, say that uh, goods movement and regulating goods movement or policy around goods movement is not the frontier. It's something that people have been working on for a while. It's just that right now we're seeing um, the uh, uh, sort of um, acceleration of the, the goods movement industry, the presence it has in our lives. We're at home, so we see those um, uh, delivery vans that are uh, driving around. I'm in L.A., so I see all of the um, shipping vessels that are out in the uh, harbor. And so it's maybe not a topic that hasn't been around for a while. It's just so much more visible in people's lives and therefore so much more visible uh, in our policy discussions. We're at the point where people make jokes if they show up late. Sorry, I had supply chain issues. Like that, <laughs> that's where we are in society. So, that's only you, Greg. That's only you. <laughs> I, I, I stole that from Twitter, I swear. Um, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you also mentioned pricing, by the way, because I, I wrote the title of the session on pricing that Marla and Harry were a part of. And, and I had to point out to them, the title of it was The Price of Everything. Of course, this comes from the Oscar Wilde, but a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And that was something I wanted to get into about, like, you know, do we, what, what do we risk if we try to price the entire world? Uh, mm. And I think they got into some of those interesting issues. But pricing comes into, uh, I'll bring out our final guest from our first day of commotion, our sort of investor focused day. Uh, and that's Alex Israel, who's the co founder and CEO of Metropolis. Uh, Metropolis is, uh, I, I, I was telling them, and they didn't disagree, sort of Reef as a service. And if you know Reef, they've been a past partner. They're the ones who are, you know, bought up all these parking lots around the United States, commercial ones and are now putting out what people call food trucks or, you know, or shipping containers. But really, Reef is building out, you know, entirely new forms of real estate to deploy there. And, you know, and, and Metropolis is basically working with real estate interests and have invested in them to do that as well. But that's but the thing I thought was really interesting in his talk is he, he had a throwaway line of, of we're, con- we're, we're short on parking in the sense of they don't actually see a long-term future for parking. And so I had to, I had to pull them aside and ask, like, what exactly is the model there? And so let's have Alex explain some of the thinking that's going on behind Metropolis and what they think the future of parking is, given the fact that, you know, there's been a surge in private vehicles. You would think that, you know, it, you know either, either be long parking or is it just simply a, a parking bubble? So let's see what Alex has to say. Okay, Alex, the, the most interesting thing you said on your panel to me was I'm not long on parking. You are literally a parking operator here. So I'm sort of curious about how you see the transition of your business model from operating parking as parking to whatever it becomes on the other side of this. Like when does that transition happen? How does that flip over? How do you imagine that happening? So I, I think Greg, more than anything else, if we think about the urban landscape over the next 10, 20, 30 years, you think about how parking and the underlying infrastructure of a city is gonna change. Right now, we know that 15 to 35% of urban infrastructure is dedicated to parking, meaning if you stand on a tall building and look at a whole city, that surface area is dedicated to what is effectively an old world asset, a non-institutionalized asset class. So how do I think that's going to evolve over the next 30 years? Do I think it's going to stay the same? No, I think that that space is going to be repatriated to a higher and better use. That doesn't necessarily have to be mobility focused. I think it's going to be parking lots. I think it'll be residential buildings. I think it'll be the fundamental requirements of a city to actually function, not kind of desolate, covered land plays. 
So if you think about Metropolis's business model evolving, I think what we do is we become the last operator. We're the last stand, if you will. We're that infrastructure provider that provides the link between old world infrastructure and new world technology. How does a autonomous vehicle get access to cleaning, servicing, charging, and deployment? How does a vertical takeoff and land, uh, vertical takeoff and landing drone get staged? All of that fundamental infrastructure is how parking will shift from a dedicated covered land play today into a mobility hub, and that's the fundamental infrastructure that we're providing. Interesting. And then the other question I have is, is how do you imagine your sort of real estate strategy changing? Because in a way, pardon, pardon the comparison, your reef is a service, right? Instead of going out and buying thousands of parking lots, you're partnering with the real estate companies to do this. They've invested in you, which is interesting to me because shared, shared workspaces have done the same, like Industrious is partnering with the industry rather than signing leases. So it's, it's sort of, from your perspective, is asset light the way of the future for you and, your, and companies like you? Yeah, we're fundamentally an asset light strategy whereby we are not leasing these locations, we're not buying these locations. What instead we're doing is we're vertically integrating the stack and solutions required to operate these locations. Normally to operate a parking location, you can have six different software stacks and a specific staffing agency to run that facility. We're vertically integrating and taking over all of those stacks and replacing the old world infrastructure or the old world parking operator with our technology. Interesting. I guess the last question I have is, is, is how do you imagine your, your, your relationship with the real estate owner, asset owners evolving? Because, you know, in effect, you'll be helping them transition to these higher and better uses of parking. So, how, you know, what are the relationships like with some of your investors so far? And like, what do you, how do you sort of see your strategy co-evolving? So right now, the industry exists whereby parking operators and parking asset owners are diametrically opposed. Parking operators don't necessarily care about driving incremental revenue, and parking asset owners don't really understand what's happening at their facilities. What we're doing is providing a uh, a transparent landscape whereby we're perfectly aligned with asset owners to provide uh, provide and drive value to their facilities. I think that at a, at a base level, if you think about parking today, you think about a, a, a base of asset owners that view parking as a need to have, not a want to have. And what we're doing is we're taking a, a direct approach that reduces the cost to operate these facilities and drives significant incremental revenue, which changes the fundamental economics to a real estate asset owner. What people often forget is Real estate asset owners are investors, and what investors care about is return on their investment. And what we're doing is we're directly aligned and incentivized to drive that return on investment. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. My absolute pleasure. All right. Again, I'm just I'm just totally fascinated, Julia, by like you know all these innovations in the in the public realm. That to me, that to me is one of the themes that I really get interested in is where mobility and the city intersect and how things are picking up and moving. That's of course always you know the autonomous delivery and things like this appeal as well. And and yeah, I think that's a, you know a theme that's going to keep resonating forward for commotion or something I'm I want to push heavily is is you know what happens when stuff. Yeah, we're not just we're not just talking about vehicles and dealing with people, but all sorts of autonomous systems, all sorts of non-permitted systems are, are out there floating around. Already, I think it came up during the delivery panel, for example, uh, that Gail Brewer, the, the Manhattan Borough President, has written angrily, angry, sternly worded letters, I should say, uh, to some of these delivery firms for violating their zoning. And, and I think it was David Lynn who pointed out that space is space. And that's exactly what I would expect from a 20-something entrepreneur here to like basically look at the city and see it as totally fungible. So I don't know. It's some, some really interesting tensions there. But 
but we'll see carrying forward. Well, I mean, I, we're, we're about to finish up here, Julia. I would love your thoughts on, you know, what themes do you think we should explore in the future? Where do you think is the cutting edge of the mobility discussion mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. As, as, as a lot of the stuff of the last five years, as I mentioned, is now going to come to fruition. Where, where do we look next? Yeah. One of the key themes that was touched upon, but we didn't go into as much detail or have as many panels on as we needed was about equity and transportation and yes. equity and transportation technology. I mean, you know, real talk. Um, I probably am, you know, do some of this myself, but there's real lip service paid to what equity means in terms of transportation technology, but there's not a lot of examples of how we are um, uh, embracing equity, both in terms of workforce development and where transportation technology is deployed uh, in how we design solutions. Um, Commotion LA, Commotion writ large has done a good job of pushing that conversation forward. And there are so many amazing thought leaders on that topic in LA, including folks like Tamika Butler and Justine Johnson, and then New York, Henry Greenidge. Um, I, you know, with that said, though, uh, I, I would love to see next year's commotion or commotion in Miami have a real discussion of equity and transportation technology and a wide variety of voices um, uh, who can point to um, programs, policies, projects that we need to be pushing forward. No, absolutely. Well, that's something to keep in mind because uh, listeners, we're, we're nearly at the end here, but I want to flag two two announcements we made uh, at Commotion is that we know Commotion Miami will be our next in-person event in April 22. And then we're going to launch a special at the end of June, June 29th, 2022, uh, Impact Vancouver, which is basically going to be another investor theme there looking at sort of technology uh, in Vancouver and British Columbia, which has certain echoes at the moment because, again, if you're following the news, we can see another, yet another climate crisis happening in Western Canada with roads being washed away in mudslides. So we know the clock is ticking on these developments, but it really sort of underscores, again, like how quickly we have to rebuild our infrastructure from climate disasters as well as head that off. So not to end on too somber a note here, Julia, but certainly certainly goes with mentioning. Um, well, I guess the last question for you then is just simply as co-host, we've, we're going to have a few more episodes. This is not the end of the season, um, but I'm excited about where, you, where you're headed next, Julia, or where you think the conversation will go from here. This, I, I heard a lot of people at the conference say that this was the first time that they've traveled recently. Um, mm. I've been more fortunate to get out there, but you know, do you expect to be out there on the road more often? Or where do you think these conversations will go? Because yeah, it, it, as we said, you know, it's, it's great to see people connecting and really forging those um, you know, that, that in-person spark. So, so I hope to see you out there soon, but any, any places me, you'll me be. Me too. I was going to say, Greg, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ready and available to go anywhere and everywhere, <laughs> especially if somebody gives me that e-bike I've been asking for for so long, I'll bike there um, as long as it's not across the ocean. But uh, one of the things I wanted to point to, I, I think you, John Rassant, Holly, others at Commotion have done such an amazing job of building this international cohort of cities and people uh, you know, UK, Canada, France, Miami, Detroit, LA, New York City, London, uh, so many um, different cities and, and countries were rec- uh, represented at this year's commotion. And I think that really speaks to just the strength of this international community around transportation technology. Um, I would love to see a commotion in many of these cities. And I hope Vancouver, Miami, they're just the start. You know, maybe we have commotion London, maybe we have commotion Mexico City. Um, I'm now just listing places that I want to travel to next, but (laughs) I, uh, you know, promotion Hanoi, like, let's just, let's take this global. Coastline all the way around. I know I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to Vancouver simply because it would fill in the the biggest uh, hole in my North American travel map, an incredible global city that I've yet to see. So, well, it gives us something to look forward to uh, in the, in summer 2022. 
Um, all right. Well, with that, let's we'll, we'll bring this episode to a close. We have again, we have two more episodes remaining in the season. So Julie and I will return in the next coming weeks before the holidays set in in earnest. Uh, but for those of you listening, enjoy the U.S. Thanksgiving hol- holiday. If you observe here in Canada, we call it Thursday. I think I'm going to go see Dune. <laughs> Finally, but um, but yeah, thanks again for joining us as always, Julia. Thank you all who joined us at Commotion LA Live. If you were there in person with us, we immensely appreciate having you and seeing you there. And yeah, in the meantime, we'll have the podcast. So. We'll be back next week with another episode of Fast Forward. Until then, take care.